This is DW News, live from Berlin. The German government calls Russia's decision to ban this network, Deutsche Welle, unacceptable. Russia has also closed down DW's Moscow bureau and revoked accreditation for all our reporters there. It follows Germany's decision to ban German-language programming of Russia's state broadcasting. And a major blow to the so-called Islamic State. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield. President Joe Biden says the leader of the Islamic State group blew himself up as U.S. special forces approached during a raid in northwest Syria. And it's just hours to go until the Winter Olympics kicks off in Beijing. Human rights concerns have overshadowed the run-up to the Games, but organizers pledged to stay out of politics has left some athletes uneasy. I'm Gerhard Elfers. Welcome to the program. The German government has condemned Moscow's decision to shut down the Russian operations of this program, Deutsche Welle. Germany's foreign ministry said the decision would put a renewed strain on German-Russian relations. Authorities have closed down DW's office in Moscow, revoked accreditations for all our journalists there and banned DW broadcasts across Russia as of today. It's being seen as a tit-for-tat move. German media regulators banned the German language programming of Russia's state broadcaster RT the day before because it doesn't have a broadcasting license for Germany. Deutsche Welle's Moscow office has to close by order of the Russian government. The decision came after Germany's media regulators banned German language programming of Russia's state media broadcaster RT for operating without a German broadcasting license. DW's Director General Peter Limburg called the Russian government's decision a disappointment and a total overreaction. This is another sign that Russia is not interested in, uh, and the Russian government is not interested in press freedom and freedom of opinion. But I can only say, um, even if we have to leave the country, we will I intensify reporting on the country. So I think this must be also clear to the Russian side that we will not just ignore what's happening in Russia. We will report and we will do more and more. For the team at DW's Moscow studio, losing their press accreditation in Russia takes a more personal toll. Yeah, that affects correspondents, producers, cameramen, editors and so on. Um, according to Russian law, they are now no longer allowed to work for Deutsche Welle. And let me say on a personal note, for me personally and for all people who support our coverage from Russia, this is a big shock. Uh, I've been the bureau chief and correspondent for Deutsche Welle here in Moscow for seven years. And like all my colleagues, I have loved reporting from Russia even more. We all were, are and will stay passionate, uh, passionate fans of Russia. By Russia, I don't necessarily mean Russian politics, but uh, the people of this great country. For now, DW is weighing its options and considering possible legal avenues. And a quick editorial note here. We'd like to stress that the statement from our Moscow bureau chief, Yuri Rischetto, in that report was recorded yesterday, February 3rd. And for more uh, on this story, I'm now joined by my colleague Irina Filatova in Bonn, who's the editor of DW's Russia service. Uh, Irina, was this banned by Russian authorities to be expected? 
Well, uh, it clearly came as a huge shock for all of us. Uh, we clearly expected some measures after RTD was banned in Germany, but we never expected that these retaliatory measures by the Russian authorities will be so hard. We never expected that our Moscow studio would be closed and that all our colleagues working in Russia would lose their accreditation. So the answer is yes, the measures were expected, but no, they were not expected to be so hard. This, the state of uh, the freedom of the press uh, has become increasingly difficult in, in Russia, not just for DW. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about press freedom in Russia? The state of the press freedom in Russia has drastically deteriorated over the last years. There's been a huge clampdown by the Russian authorities on their independent media. Many of them have been put on the list of foreign agents, meaning that they are subject to, uh, to an extra government scrutiny. Um, and they also have to brand mark themselves as foreign, as foreign agents, um, I mean, any time that they publish something in Russia. And uh, clearly that has been a huge, uh, huge step to deteriorate uh, the freedom of press in Russia. Uh, right now there are over 100 media outlets and independent journalists um, on this list at the moment. Um, and um, according to the statement by the, foreign, uh, by the foreign ministry in Russia, which was published yesterday, the Russian authorities might also consider to put Deutsche Welle on this uh, list of foreign agents. Um, so mm. it is all unclear which is going to happen. So what's going to be uh, happening next, especially with regard to our coverage and our colleagues there? What are you hearing? Well, there are many questions that still remain open, like many technical and legal questions. What we know for sure is that uh, our Moscow studio is not allowed to be operating anymore. Uh, it had to be closed starting 9 a.m. today, and all our colleagues working in Moscow have to return their press accreditation cards um, at the foreign ministry. These are the accreditation cards that allow them to work as journalists in Russia. So that means that none of our colleagues in Russia are allowed to uh, work as journalists over there. Um, there, has been, uh, there have been a lot of voices of independent uh, journalist organizations, journalism lobby organizations in Germany calling for the uh, government in Germany to um, provide a clear and unmistakable answer and reaction to these uh, drastical measures by the Russian authorities. And um, it is very much expected that uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, which is going to travel to Russia within the next few days, uh, is going to bring this issue up during his talks with Vladimir Putin. Whether this uh, conversation will bring anything, whether this talks will bring anything concerning our Moscow studio remains unclear. DW's Irina Filatova in Bonn talking to us. Uh, thank you, Irina. You're welcome. Well, Irina just said it. Uh, Russia's ban of DW comes as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz prepares a trip to Moscow for talks about the crisis in Ukraine. Scholz called the buildup of Russian troops on Ukraine's border, quote, very serious and said any invasion would come with consequences. The German Chancellor has been under pressure from other NATO members to take a harder line on Russia. Now let's bring in our chief political correspondent, Melinda Cray. Melinda, so another issue has been added to Chancellor Scholz's agenda. What has the government been saying so far? 
Well, the German Federal Minister for Culture and Media, Claudia Roth, uh, criticized uh, the decision quite emphatically yesterday and said that Russia is drawing a false equivalence between uh, Russia Today and Deutsche Welle. And she said that the broadcasting ban uh, that Russia has now imposed is wholly unacceptable, quote unquote, and said uh, that DW is an independent organization, meaning that unlike Russia Today, the German government does not steer broadcasting content. As you know, uh, Gerhard DW, is an independent broadcaster funded by taxpayers, but we are not a state broadcaster as Russia Today is. And the foreign ministry of Germany made the same point yesterday, saying that Moscow's measures have no basis whatsoever, quote unquote, and add up to a new strain on German-Russian relations. And they too rejected that equivalence between RT and DW. And you know, the German foreign minister, uh, Annalena Baer, pointed this out directly to Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov when she visited Moscow in January, saying German history, which involved uh, Nazi uh, control of the media, German history had led to the fact that German licensing authorities simply do not give licenses to state broadcasters. Well, this all comes at a time when German-Russian relationships uh, are pretty fraught, right? Absolutely. You know, going all the way back to 2015, when there was a major uh, cyber attack on the German parliament, the Bundestag, which was uh, later definitively proven to have come from Russian hackers. And then we've also seen cyber attacks on leading German politicians, uh, especially uh, from the CDU, uh, Chancellor Merkel's party. We've seen the poisoning of a, uh, a, a former Chechen commander right here in in Berlin in the middle of the daytime in a city park, again, attributed to uh, Russia. And then, of course, the treatment of Alexei Navalny after he returned from being treated for poisoning in a German hospital, promptly arrested for a parole violation for not attending a meeting he couldn't attend because he was in the hospital. So with all of that, already on the plate. Now we also have the tensions over Ukraine and in particular over how Germany will react, whether it will hold on to its project, uh, which always the, the, the German authorities claim to be a private project of the gas pipeline, that uh, Nord Stream 2, that would bring gas directly from Russia to Germany. So lots and lots of issues on Chancellor Schultz's agenda indeed. Well, Scholz is being urged by NATO partners to take a tougher line on Russia. There's a perception that he uh, has only been in office for a couple of months. OK, but he's been sitting on the fence. Is that likely to change now? We are already uh, hearing some movement uh, from him, uh, even more so from the foreign ministry. Annalena Baerbock has made it quite clear that uh, she is working with other European partners on what she called a tough package of sanctions that would include Nord Stream 2. She said basically everything's on the table. This week, Chancellor Schultz also said it's very important to coordinate with EU partners that that's central to Germany. And he said that it's 
also very, very important that Germany send a clear message that there will be a very high price, as he put it, didn't mention Nord Stream, but said high price. And, you know, he'll be traveling not just to Moscow, but also to Washington before the meeting in Moscow. So undoubtedly, that's a message that he will be firming up, I think, in that meeting. Melinda Crane there. Thank you very much, Melinda. The United States says it has evidence that Russia is preparing a false flag operation to justify an invasion of Ukraine. Officials said Moscow was producing a video that portrays a fabricated Ukrainian attack on Russians. Now we can say that the United States has information that Russia is planning to stage fabricated attacks by Ukrainian military or intelligence forces as a pretext for a further invasion of Ukraine. One possible option the Russians are considering, and which we made public today, involves the production of a propaganda video, a video with graphic scenes of <coughs> false explosions, depicting cor corpses, crisis actors pretending to be mourners, and images of destroyed locations or military equipment, entirely fabrica fabricated by Russian intelligence. Well, as tensions are growing between Moscow and the West over the crisis there, Russia's President Vladimir Putin is headed to friendlier ground in China. Putin is in Beijing for talks with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. It's the Chinese president's first face-to-face -face meeting with a world leader in two years. The pair will later attend the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympic Games. Well, journalist Fabian Kretschmer is in Beijing following the two leaders meeting. Fabian, uh, managing this relationship is crucial to both leaders. How good is it right now? Well, you can argue that the bilateral relationship between the two countries is um, as good as it has never been before. And that also includes the Soviet times. Um, politically, they need each other in their antagonism against the West. They also both um, oppose an expansion of the NATO. And um, not only politically, also econom economically, they have um, shared interests. For example, China is a rising economy and very energy hungry. And Russia has the oil and gas supplies for China. Uh, vice versa, um, China can invest in Russia and also has the technology to sell to Russia. But if you look at the number, then at least from the view from Beijing, it's clear that Russia is the junior partner. Um, also in GDP per capita, China has now exceeded Russia and um, yeah, Russia's economy is much more depending on China than it is the other way around. So all eyes currently on the, the rather tense situation on the Russian-Ukrainian border. Tell us more about China's stance in this conflict. Well, China officially wants a peaceful solution and, um, yeah, they oppose anything that could endanger the stability, the social stability. But um, they are clearly loyal to Russia and for them it's also um, the conflict uh, provides valuable insight uh, for one of their own um, conflict, namely the Taiwan conflict. Of course, um, uh, the two issues are quite um, uh, separate and different, but there are some parallels. And, for example, if Russia would invade Ukraine, then, of course, for China it's really valuable... Um, to see how much would the West oppose, what, what is the reaction, and they can use it as a tactical information in the way how they would deal with Taiwan. A lot of speculation that Russian military planning may be affected by the Olympics. How important is maintaining uh, an Olympic truce, if you will, to China? 
Well, for China, it's uh, very important. I mean, the leadership has waited a long time to um, yeah, present itself here as a as a rising nation, as a world power to the international stage. They want basically um, yeah, propagate their message and uh, their narrative, and they don't want anything to interfere with that, be it um, uh, an escalation in Ukraine, but also be it a um, military provocation by North Korea. So, um, yeah, it's very important. And if Putin would indeed invade uh, Ukraine during the Olympics, that was would be quite disrespectful against the leadership in Beijing. Fabian Kretschmer there in Beijing talking to us. Thank you, Fabian. Now, we're just hours away from the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics. But the coronavirus pandemic isn't the only issue looming over the Games. China's human rights abuses are also in the spotlight. With less than 24 hours until the Games officially open, the political clouds over Beijing show no signs of clearing, despite the repeated efforts of IOC President Thomas Bach to resist what he views as the instrumentalization of the Olympics. The ancient Greeks knew that, uh, that uh, if uh, the Games would be used uh, for uh, would would come in between the, the the political tensions which were high at the time between uh, Sparta and Athens and and, and others if uh, the the games would not be considered to be neutral they would not have uh, survived there for 1000 years Australian open spectators were accused last month by China of politicizing sport after tennis fans handed out where's Peng Shuai t-shirts Bach confirmed that he will meet the Chinese tennis star who disappeared from public life in November after she accused a high-ranking Communist Party official of sexual assault. Peng Shui later retracted that allegation, though there are concerns she may have done so under duress. It's a necessity then to, to respect her and then to listen to her and how she sees uh, the situation how she wants to, uh, to live uh, her, her life. China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims here in Xinjiang province has prompted countries like the US and the UK to stage a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. Asked for comment, Bach cited his No Politics pledge. The uh, position of uh, the, the IOC uh, must be given the uh, political uh, neutrality that uh, we are not uh, commenting on uh, political uh, uh, issues. As the curtain rises on a Beijing Olympics surrounded by political intrigue, Bach's insistence that they be kept out of the Games remains unwavering. Well, for more on this, I'm now joined by Jonathan Crane from DW Sports reporting there from Beijing as well. Jonathan, uh, Thomas Bach was asked some tough questions at yesterday's press conference. What did you make of his answers? Well, he stuck to that line that the IOC is politically neutral. It was the central theme of the press conference, Gerhard. This question of whether sport and politics should mix. And as we heard in the piece, the IOC clearly says no. But that stance was particularly jarring yesterday, I have to say, when he was specifically asked about the Uyghurs and their repression, and he answered no comment. Now, critics would say this whole argument from the IOC is very contradictory. Let's just cast our mind back four years ago, the opening ceremony of the Pyeongchang Olympics, 2018, 
North and South Korea marched together, and the IOC was instrumental in that. So how do you square that box? Rights groups here are calling, or rights groups in general, are calling for athletes to use their platform and speak out against the human rights abuses. Now, I asked Thomas Bach in his press conference yesterday whether he could guarantee athletes' safety if they did choose to speak out. The rules say they can in certain situations. They're not allowed to protest uh, at their events or on the podium, but they can in press conferences or uh, mix zones, things like that. He refused to answer that question specifically. He just talked about the Olympic Charter and the rules. They can protest. Whether they are brave enough to do so, though, in this climate remains to be seen. Well, Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai was also discussed. Uh, what did Bach have to say about her fate? I've lost, I can't hear anything. I'm afraid we've lost contact with Jonathan there, Beijing. Jonathan, can you still hear us? No, that seems to have broken down. We apologize for that. Okay. Let's go to our next item. The roundup of some other stories making news today. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has lost four more key aides as his popularity plummets over lockdown parties. Johnson's chief of staff, private secretary and communications director have all resigned and his policy unit chief Manira Mirza quit over Johnson's controversial comments on Monday when he attacked opposition Labour leader Keir Starmer quite unfairly. Northern Ireland's First Minister has resigned in protest at post-Brexit trade rules. He stepped down after one of his ministers tried to block the inspection of goods arriving from other parts of the UK. The region is currently facing fresh tensions over the Brexit protocol that keeps Northern Ireland in the EU's single market. The Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, has asked the regime that seized power in Burkina Faso last week to propose an election timetable. The group held an emergency summit in Ghana's capital, Accra, to discuss measures against Burkina Faso, as well as what the group called a dangerous trend of military power grabs in the region. U.S. President Joe Biden says the leader of the so-called Islamic State has been killed during an overnight raid by U.S. special forces in Syria. Thirteen others, including women and children, also died after the target detonated a suicide bomb. It follows growing concern that IS may be trying to regroup in the region. A collapsed roof and a dead terrorist leader. The result of a U.S. special forces raid in the pre-dawn hours on Thursday morning in a Syrian village near the Turkish border. Abu Ibrahim al-Hashemi al-Karashi reportedly blew himself up as about two dozen troops, backed by air support, moved in on a house he was in. Karashi was considered the head of so-called Islamic State. He took over the terrorist group when his predecessor died much the same way in 2019. U.S. President Joe Biden told reporters after the raid that the group, while smaller than a few years ago, is still dangerous. He referred to Karachi by his other name, Haj Abdullah. ISIS has directed terrorist operations targeting Americans, our allies and our partners, and countless civilians in the Middle East, Africa, and in South Asia. Haji Abdullah oversaw the spread of ISIS-affiliated terrorist groups around the world 
after savaging communities and murdering innocents. U.S. officials say the operation Biden ordered took weeks to plan. It happened amid growing concerns that IS may be trying to regroup. In January, IS attacked a prison in northeast Syria in an effort to free its fighters held there. It took days for U.S.-backed Kurdish forces to retake the prison, killing hundreds in the process. No Americans were harmed in the overnight raid on Al-Karashi's home, despite an exchange of gunfire and one helicopter making a forced landing due to mechanical issues. At least 13 other people, including other fighters, women and children, were killed as well. U.S. officials attribute the deaths to Al-Karashi's own bomb. They said they chose to risk putting boots on the ground rather than an airstrike to avoid civilian casualties. The U.S. military has been under pressure to review its targeted strikes, some of which have killed more civilians than initially reported. Time now for a quick look at some of the latest developments in the coronavirus pandemic. Germany's vaccine commission has recommended a second COVID-19 booster be given to at-risk groups. That includes the over 70s, those with compromised immune systems and healthcare workers. The World Health Organization has said Europe may be entering the end of the pandemic. High vaccination rates, the milder Omicron variant and the end of winter mean Europe is set for a, quote, period of tranquility. And Austria's vaccine mandate has now passed both, both houses of parliament. Austria is the first European country to make vaccination mandatory for all adults, with only some medical exceptions. And finally tonight, the Dutch city of Rotterdam, Europe's busiest port, has given the green light to dismantle a historic bridge for a very wealthy customer. This bridge will be temporarily taken apart so that an oversized yacht under construction nearby can pass through on its way to the North Sea. The 40-meter-long vessel is set to become the world's biggest yacht when it's launched later this year. It's believed to have been commissioned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who is, of course, one of the world's richest people. You're watching DW News. Here's a reminder of the top story we are following for you. The German government has condemned Russia's decision to ban this station, Deutsche Welle. Russia said it was shuttering DW's Moscow bureau after Berlin banned German language programming of Russian state broadcaster RT due its lack of a license. DW's Director General Peter Limburg called the move by Moscow a total overreaction and promised legal action. Don't forget, you can always get DW News on the go. Just download our app from Google Play or from the App Store. That'll give you access to all the latest news from around the world, as well as push notifications for any breaking news. And if you happen to be part of a news story, you can also use the DW app to send us your photos and your videos of what's happening around you. That's it from me and the news team for now. Don't go away. To the point is next, asking if Turkey can survive Erdogan. That's coming up right after a short break. And I'll have more world news for you at the top of the hour. And, of course, you can always get all the latest news on our website, dw.com. Gerhard Elvis in Berlin. From me and the team, thanks for watching.
point. Strong opinions, clear positions, international perspectives. Could Turkey's soaring inflation and plunging currency bring down a president sometimes referred to as Teflon Tayyip for his ability to deflect crises? Economic pain is provoking doubt even among staunch supporters. Can Turkey survive Erdogan? Find out on To The Point. To The Point. Next on DW. Dry facts. Most parts of the world, or at least for, for one month a year, are experiencing some water stress. There's plenty of seawater, but desalination is energy intensive and expensive. A Berlin-based startup shows us it doesn't have to be this way. Global 3000. In 60 minutes on DW. Sometimes a seed is all you need to allow big ideas to grow. We're bringing environmental conservation to life with Learning Packs by Global Ideas. We will show you how climate change and environmental conservation is taking shape around the world and how we can all make a difference. Knowledge grows through sharing. Download it now for free.